warm welcome to you all. Hope you'll thoroughly enjoy our program. Britannia podcast, a very British podcast about very British movies with just a hint of professionalism. Hi everybody, Scott here. No Stephen this week, but I am joined with my two co-hosts from the Stinking Paws podcast. Hello Paul, hello Charlie. Good evening. Good evening. Enjoyed yourself so much, you've come back for a second helping. Well, I couldn't keep us away. Addictive. <laughs> it's the free alcohol around my house, isn't it? But that's <laughs> well, that's something thing. to do with it. <laughs> So this was Charlie's choice this yes. time round. It's a very Charlie On choice. brand. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's one that we would have got to eventually uh, on Real Britannia. You know, Stephen and I would have, would have got to this at some point. Um, and I am in no way surprised that Charlie picked it. Seen it before? No. Ah, that makes it even more interesting. I oh, know. I thought you had. Oh, Okay. And I know you definitely hadn't I seen it. I definitely hadn't, no. Oh, I, th- I thought I'd seen it. Mm-hmm. Or I thought I'd, what had actually been the case was that Kermode made one of these episodes of On Film. Yep. And it had quite a few extracts. And it had like the famous opening sort of tracking first person yeah. shot. Mm. Um, but I, yeah, when I started watching it, I thought, no, I've definitely not seen it. Don't this. know this at all. Yeah, I think I first saw it on Movie Drum. Yeah. Mm. May have been yeah, it's mid-80s. that type of film mm. that would have been. Yeah, yeah. Alex Cox would have been gushing over. <laughs> he does what? <laughs> Cox and gushing? Alex Cox. I thought we were trying to keep this professional. <laughs> yeah. Word of warning, dear listeners, this is Charlie and Paul. And <laughs> Pathetic, isn't it? <laughs> I may be hitting the mute button or the, the bleepy button at some point. <laughs> no. Um, let's get into this. I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll play the trailer and we'll be back after this. Look out. Look out! Look out! Take care. You are being watched. We repeat, take care, for you are now alone with a killer. We warn you, don't let him see the fear in your eyes. For this is what he seeks, and this is why he kills. Where are you? Where are you? out for Carl Byrne as the peeping Tom. Fear him, but pity him also. <laughs> it's no good. Watch out for Moira Shearer as the lovely stand-in who innocently dances into danger. Imagine. Someone coming towards you who wants to kill you, regardless of consequences. Madman? Yes. Anna Massey is the girl who falls victim to the charms of a lonely stranger upstairs. Take it off, Mark. 
Knock, switch it off. Maxine Ortley, as the blind woman who senses the danger that threatens her and her daughter, but is helpless. Don't be frightened. Not frightened. What? So put that camera away. There is no future for anyone who tries to befriend him. He invades the privacy of innocent people till the piercing eyes of his camera meet the terrified eyes of his victims. And with a compulsion akin to madness, he shoots the final fearful scene. Okay, Peeping Tom, released in the UK 1960, directed by Michael Powell, starring, bear with me, Carl Heinz Bum. Bum. Is it Bum? <laughs> I think it's Bum. <laughs> Moira Shearer, Anna Massey, Maxine Audley, Esmond Knight, Bartlett Mullins, what a great name. Bartlett Mullins is in there as well. Uh, no Stephen this week, so there won't be a Village Hall of Fame, so Stephen will pick up the pieces from this and add the names to the Village Hall of Fame. At the next time we meet, the plot, the synopsis. Loner, Mark Lewis, works at a film studio during the day and at night takes racy photographs of women. Also, he's making a documentary on fear, which involves recording the reactions of victims as he murders them. He befriends Helen, the daughter of the family living in the apartment below his, and tells her vaguely about the movie he's making. She sneaks into Mark's apartment to watch it and is horrified by what she sees especially when Mark catches her. That is a really bizarre synopsis. That's telling the whole film, beginning and end, without actually anything of the premise of it. And it doesn't really give anything away at the same time, does it? That's bizarre. Okay, I'm I'm really keen to find out, because I've seen this about four or five times, so I'm really keen to find out first-time reactions. Who wants to go first? It's got to be Paul. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) Why me? Um, do you know what? I was struggling to watch it. I watched it over two nights. Yeah. I was sort of struggled the first night, and yet when I went back to it the second night, I sort of remembered what had happened, but with sort of fondness sort of thing. I was actually <laughs> quite <laughs> looking right. forward to seeing the second part <laughs> of it. Deep affection for a 20 minutes yeah. of a movie. Yeah. <laughs> It's one of those movies that whilst you're watching it, it's a bit confusing and you could pick holes in it if you like because it's 1960. But when it ended and you sit there and think about it, I actually enjoyed it. I I surprised myself in the fact that I enjoyed it. Okay. It's very obscure, really well filmed, I thought. Um, The fact that it was 1960, that the colour is so vibrant. Yep. Um, and the main character, Mark. Yeah. I mean, it took me a little while to get his German accent there because he speaks so softly. You didn't realise that? Yeah. He's such a weird one because he's such a pushover, like, or he seems such a pushover in real life, Mm -hmm. like, and yet... He's taking these films of, well, he's on a film set in the day. He's taking 
their equivalent of pornos at night or whatever. <laughs> it's just a, it's a very strange sort of setup. And then he lives in this house that he rents out other rooms to, but no one knew he was the landlord. That's just strange. Yeah. And he's got psycho killer in all over him. It has, <laughs> yeah. You, you go in his room, his huge bedroom, and then off the back of it is another huge sort of development. Dark room type. Thing, yeah, and yeah. studio sort of thing. And it's just like, I can't believe at certain points, like when Helen, was it? Yeah. Character's name? When she first goes into that room and finds the room off the room, and I'm like, yeah, most people, alarm bells would be going. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, let's get Charlie's first thoughts on this, because you, you, you had a vague awareness of the movie. You knew sort of what you were letting yourself in for. I think Paul went in a bit blinder than you did. Mm. Did it live up to expectations, was it? It did, largely, yeah. yeah. I thought it was excellent. Um, I think, like... As you say, being aware of the film is mainly based on the critical reception of it and yeah. the fact that it was considered to be responsible for the end of Powell's directorial career. Absolutely. Um, and that's, that sounds like quite strange in itself, um, mm. but even more so when you consider what an absolute sort of national treasury was as well, like what Indeed. he'd done for British cinema already. Yeah. Um, but... I think once you get over the fact that this is going to be some really controversial thing for its time, not so much modern standards, no. although, you know, it is still a very dark subject matter, it's, you start appreciating it as a piece of cinema more, because as you say, it's, despite its kind of seedy nature, it's still got that resplendent thing that you associate with, like Powell and the, exactly, the vibrancy yeah. of the colour and yeah. the, the fact that it's capturing sort of like the emergence of swing in London and like the fact that he's on the moped and he's in Soho and yeah. I, I think for me as well what really came across is like this is telling you how huge the 60s were in terms of changing British people's attitudes to sex and that like the fact that yeah. films like this were being made um, the reception to it does suggest that like people still weren't quite ready yet well, the thing but that surprised me, the permissive age is always sort of heralded as when the Lady Chatterley trial mm. emerged, which was 61, I think, Yeah, which is the year after. So I was surprised that this was quite so shocking before the floodgates had opened sort of thing. Mm. Um, so it's the first film, British film, to have full... Uh, to have, not full, but to have frontal nudity in it. Really? Yeah. It's, it's that thing though isn't it it's like you know that's not the most shocking aspect of no, it no. it's a bit like the thing with Psycho which only follows this a few months later isn't it um, so, yeah, yeah, so yeah. I'm, I'm probably quite heavily influenced by it um, one of the most or one of at the time one of the most shocking things or unique things about Psycho was the fact that a flushing toilet that's was shown yeah. on screen yeah. not the fact that it's about a bloke <laughs> who's wanking over women in a shower and going to kill them after but like <laughs> So what was the most shocking part of this film, then, guys? Oh, I, mean, I was just say it's of its so, time, so there wasn't it wasn't that shocking, you know. But uh, I, I can tell you the most shockingly bad part of it. Okay, go on. Was when he killed himself at the end. Spoilers. <laughs> 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 that, I mean, 
the acting was of its time, Order Three. You you can tell it's it's that kind of era, but the where he tries to impale himself on his own spike. <laughs> And then you can see him holding it and pushing it away to the side of his throat. Uh, no, no sign of blood whatsoever. Yet stabbed in the neck. I think there might be a little bit of blood Just coming out there. Then, yeah. But yeah, I can see past that. It was. Uh... But then looking back and thinking, okay, this is 1960. We've got nudity in it. We've got blood. We've got a really creepy guy doing some really creepy shit. Yes. I think it's like the, the actual just embracing the fact that pornography was available like that as well. You know, the idea that the whole point of that kind of side of life at the time was that you didn't speak about it. You didn't portray it in cinema yeah, that gentlemen it, would go into it. It was very much my like, favourite scene. It's brilliant, my isn't it? My favourite scene. Oh, I'll have a time to the telegraph. But it's yeah. like, <laughs> I'm trying to do the accent that Adam does when he does like the uh, Brighton Strangler. Like, oh, yes, two tickets to Canterbury, please. Like, um, that, but that kind of... Yes, I've been, I've been told you have you have some views for sale. <laughs> yeah. What views would you like, sir? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then the old book comes out, the old photo album. I love the the, the, the uh, envelope educational book. Educational yeah. books. <laughs> yeah. All had brown paper coverings. And that's on. it. And he, yeah. nods, he nods in approval. Thank you very much. You know, as he goes away, so he takes the whole lot, doesn't he? It's just like yeah. This that irony of it being so poorly received as a film because of the morality that is part of the film is kind of holding up excuse the pun holding up a lens to the fact that this seedy stuff actually goes on and i mean soho didn't just happen overnight in the 60s it was it was a build-up to it yeah i think it was uh Emily the Apes kind of uh, hunting playground, so no, no surprise that it became like that. That became associated with vice and mm. kind of it, it was post war where it came into its own. Mm. You know, Ugh. with people like um, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad I've got you two. Here. So everything's going to be a double entendre, isn't it? But you know, people like Jack Spot, um, you know, the pre crazy era, you know, the, but the people that would sort of be running around with um, Ronnie Scott and all that, like when the club started. Yeah, Yeah. and it was, it was the jazz age, you know, or the tail end of the jazz age, 1960. And I just thought it was refreshing to see a movie from that era that wasn't afraid to take this sort of whole subject matter. Yeah. Not just the murder... But the whole thing of what's going on around it in the environment and, yeah. and you know, it's like the you said, the news agent and, and the, yeah. Well, it's the psychosexual stuff as well about, like, the idea that people find really hard to confront that, like, sexual desire is linked to, to anything traumatic happening in the past and, mm. you know, it's it's just a, a can of worms that people don't really want to open and I think that's one of the things that make, made people uncomfortable about that film. It's it's so pioneering, I think, mm. that he wants to do that. Yeah, it's a very disturbing subject, especially when you get into why he sort of become like this because of his father. Because was it the psychiatrist on set was talking to him about his father, and he was carrying on Lectured his father's yeah. work. And then right at the very end, there's the audio clip of. <laughs> Yeah, that that in some respects, that's the bit that really kind of sent a chill down my spine. Yeah. Was it hold daddy's hand or yeah. something? Yeah, yeah. That, that was like... But it all 
it made sense. It put the film into a different perspective just by having that 20 seconds at the end. You're like, you almost felt sorry for the main character a little. Well, that's the interesting thing of whether they can portray a character like Mark without trying, you know, if they just make him this evil person who's killing women for his own kind of satisfaction, mm. that's when the film does really come into kind of legitimate criticism because that's when it could be gratuitous. But but trying to give you his backstory and his history and saying, you know, this is why he's end up ended up yeah. doing the horrible things, it kind of makes it more, I don't know, intriguing. And you know you want to find out why he's like this as opposed to just someone being mental and going around like yeah. Well see that women. story unfolds, doesn't it, at yeah. its own pace because we get the thing with the flashing lights in the eyes, which he uses himself on his victim at the beginning. Yeah, but you didn't know. Don't know why. why so that's what I mean. Like. It's a nice little MacGuffin. Yeah, because right? yeah. yeah. I couldn't work that out. I was thinking, why is the sort of that light flashed in the eyes? Yeah. And I did think, oh, possibly a mirror, but I or didn't put the, the two, or something two together. But and it does, and it, as you learn more about him. But didn't that become a bit too laboured, or that was? Did that become a bit too convenient? And I think they had to do it. It may have never came out if they hadn't done right. That. Okay, because it's about trying to give people reasons as to why this happens, as yeah. opposed to just it just did. gratuity. Yeah. If you know what I mean. Yeah, but it's also also different in the fact that. I don't know, my perception of most serial killers is, is the old mother fixation and, mm. you know, single parent brought up by their mother, as in Psycho itself. You know. It's Helen who has the overbearing mother in this. Yeah. Oh, she's a... A great character. Mm. Yeah. I, I forgot she was blind. <laughs> I've seen this whole film. You're one of. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't until there was, a, there was a bit where she reaches out for her glass and pours the whiskey. Mm. Yeah, um, and I thought, yeah, does oh, that all right? She, she? Got, well, no, but she did it in, a, in, in the way that she could see that, or not see that she could tell how much she was pouring in. Um, it's something that you're quite seasoned with. I, like, I, I often, <laughs> often drink in the dark, <laughs> often, <laughs> dark alleyways. <usually. laughs> what, what about Helen herself then? That's very naive. That that she was only twenty one. Was her twenty mm, first birthday? Yes, at yeah. the start. Yeah. Yeah, because she realised, and yet she still sort of went back and still, <laughs> yeah, she's a... As soon as I see the lizard in that film, I'm fucking out of there. Like, it's, <laughs> like that's your cue, isn't it? Like, this ain't right. And it's, it's strange, because it reaches a crescendo for her, and it's only when, like, his father gives him the present on the film with the camera that that's when she decides that it's too much for her. It's yeah. quite strange. Yeah, the yeah. camera, yeah, yeah. Was, was, the, was the clicking point. Yeah, bizarre. Yeah, that whole relationship. Yeah. Does it does it work? I don't think... It's, there's something about it that's always troubled me. And I think what you said, Paul, the fact that she's so trusting from the outset. Yeah, she's got a bit of a dark side herself and... Sort of going with on that one. Is it is it rebellion against the mother? I think that's why they yeah. do it. Everything's yeah. got a cause and effect in this yeah. film. So yeah. like, the only reason she can be betrayed as being slightly damaged or dark is because of the mother's actions, and the only reason she's in the film is because they have to have this kind of, you have to put the pure innocence in there to make him look more repellent. If you mm. know what I mean, yeah. like it's light and shade, isn't it? It's. Yeah. Um, and I think for me, that's maybe where the film just kind of falls down a little bit. Is that it's really pioneering. It's got these really interesting, innovative ideas, 
but it still succumbs to some of like the formalities. Typical, typical formalities that you would mm. have got in a film at that time, which you can't really blame it for. No. But like for me, I became slightly less interested in the film as it turned into a more like conventional thriller, like the pursuit of him. Yeah. yeah. Like I, I, I actually just really enjoyed it as a character study of him rather than yeah. what's going to happen, is he going to be caught? I wasn't that interested yeah. in that. Because he didn't things. exactly go into great effort to hide his tracks at any point. <laughs> <does> <laughs> apart, <he? laughs> apart from, can we mention the trunk? The trunk. The blue trunk. The blue trunk. <laughs> right. We've got this whole sequence with Moira Shearer. Now, Paul, I, I'm pretty sure you haven't seen The Red Shoes, which was the Powell and Pressburger film that Charlie and I reviewed. Stinking Paul. It's in The Red Shoes Diary. believe <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's probably more on par with this, actually. Um, outstanding film. In outstanding. Film. Again, the cinematography, the colour, we, we were totally fell in love with it. It's about ballet, of all things. It's about, you know, this ballet dance. It's not unlike all that jazz, in a way, that it's about the production of yeah. a ballet as well. But yeah. Moira Shearer was the star of it. She was the ballet dancer. So that's why she's doing all the dancing and all the all the stuff in this. And, and fantastic. You know, she was great in this as well, Charlie. I think yeah. you'd agree. It's just that whole sequence leading up to the murder. <laughs> the positioning of the trunk. Mm. I don't know. It's old habits die hard, though, isn't it? It's <laughs> it is like a, a kind of calling back to previous works and what they were known for. It's yeah. that, that razzmatazz element has still got to be there somewhere. And it's interesting that uh, is it Baden, the director, mm -hmm. when he's filming that scene, he said, "I want comedy to be in this scene. I need comedy to be in this yeah. scene." So there's this idea that at that time it doesn't matter what kind of filmmate you are, you have to kind of. You you have to kind of submit to everyone's kind of sensibilities in a film. It's got to have a little bit of everything in it. Yeah. Like, I like it when they find the girl in the trunk. She screamed too early. <laughs> <laughs> Ye gods. <laughs> I thought you'd enjoy some of that aspect of it, Scott, because you love films that betray the the filmmaking of films. Yeah, yeah, but but that I think the comedic elements of that took me out of it a bit. Mm. Where we've had this intense character study leading up to that point, and you know some horrific scenes of the time at the time, uh, for for then to go into this really light-hearted sequence with the three trunks again, what Charlie was saying, they're trying to balance the whole film, yeah, aren't they? But it does take you out of it, a bit, yeah. doesn't it? Like, Some, oh, sometimes you just want to see a dark film that yeah, stays dark. The momentum gets lost in that point. I'm like. Oh, okay, and then it takes a couple of scenes or whatever to yeah. get back into when you know. Well, I've always said like the reason I love seventy cinema is because that's the first decade in modern Hollywood where filmmakers just kind of they decide what direction they're going to go in. Mm. Um, even if you go back a little bit before, I remember saying about Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Mm. One of the things I disliked, one of the very few things I disliked about it was that tonally it's all over the place so like do you want it to be a violent western do you want it to be a love story do you want it to be like a buddy movie mm. and the musical and, sequence and the like, yeah, falling on your head bj bit, thomas yeah was bj thomas yes. rest in peace um <laughs> but it's like uh, you get the impression that in that era in filmmaking in the 50s and 60s they're trying to kind of cater to everyone yeah whereas when directors start having more autonomy like this film in the seventies would have been 
mental. Oh, exactly. It's, it's called yeah. frenzy. I, I think. was just like, about yeah. to say it's, it's frenzy ten years yeah. before. And, and I'm not too au fait with the history of the making of this or whatever. Did Pound make this deliberately as a controversial piece? Did he deliberately try and think, okay, we've made family-friendly movies for the last twenty years. Yeah, now I want to. It's a nod. Try something one. else. It, it, it's basically like Spielberg announcing that he's going to do a Saw movie, isn't it? It's like <laughs> yeah, it's true. someone yeah. who's known for wholesome content. Not um, diluted, but not CD, not controversial. Right. But really taking a risk. Yeah, yeah. And and it backfired professionally yeah. for him. Absolutely. He ended up making films for the Children's Film Foundation in the 70s. Um, that's, he, that's quite disturbing. <laughs> yeah, but then he also like had to work abroad. He, he couldn't make another movie really? here throughout the sixties. So why do you think that is, though? Why do you think there was such a backlash, though? I mean, I know it was a controversial thing for the time, but what is it about that film? That See, really... it's one of those movies that I think, in in hindsight, you look back and it is a bona fide forty two carat classic movie that was woefully ignored or criticised for all the wrong reasons were the public ready for it were the critics ready for it I, yeah. think, I think the public probably were ready for it it was the critics that weren't at the time because I think the public were open to anything I also think that the better a filmmaker you are unfortunately the more people have fixed expectations of yeah. what they want you to make as well like Tarantino or Scorsese or whoever People have very high demands, not just in terms well, of quality, but what they want the film to be. And, and great yeah. filmmakers shouldn't just cater to that. They should exactly. always want to push the envelope. And from what I can remember from when I was doing my thing on Psycho for, for Rainbow Valley, there wasn't that much of a massive backlash against Hitchcock six months yeah. down the line for making a what in effect is a slasher movie. You know, But then Hitchcock is the master of suspense. So, so it was in the right vein. Yeah. 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 Uh, maybe, maybe. Yeah, that might be the reason for it. That's his kind of remit, isn't it? So, so he just upped it a notch, didn't he? It, it's like, you know, no one gets... Yeah, it wasn't such a shocking change, was it? From, yeah. Been, Hitchcock had been building to something like The Psycho. The Psycho? The Psycho, <laughs> yeah. That's the second one. <laughs> You know, the like 59, the one before was, was North by Northwest. Mm. Uh, yeah. it's, it's bizarre, isn't it? You know, the way, but it's indicative of the way people's attitudes were changing. Yeah. And like I said, I think the public may have been ready for this shift. Mm. But the critics, who always know best, and actually don't, yeah. are like, oh my God, Michael Powell has done something absolutely foul and disgusting. Do not go and see this movie. Well, um, the guy who played Mark, um, Mr. Burn, Mr. Carl Heinz Burn. He he mentioned that like uh, after the premiere, he he can actually remember not a single person coming up to him or Michael Power and shaking their hands, which is like just a very customary thing to yeah. do. Mm. So people were genuinely sort of outraged, offended. yeah, offended, yeah. which is a shame because they're it's their loss, I think. Again, it, it, it sometimes it takes forty years for a movie to actually find its place, doesn't it? Mm. Still waiting on Space Jam to have that kind of <laughs> reappraisal. <laughs> no, but it's it, it's strange me talking about an era of cinema that I'm so fond of, but you know I can't actually speak for what the reception of these no. films was at the time. Well, okay, so in Paul's case, then your reaction to it as a 
60-year-old movie. Want to make out that for No, no, no. <laughs> Same as. It's a 60-year-old movie that you've watched for the very first time mm. that you know has got some cachet. It's got some... It's up there in the top ten list of British movies and things now, isn't it, Charlie? I'm sure we see it inside. Twenty uh, seventh best British film of all time, there according to BFI. So you're, you're sort of aware of that sort of status of the movie. Mm-hmm. You knew it was shocking, but you knew it was 1960. So I've, I've, I've just got this vision of you watching it, and you're thinking, "Well, that wasn't that shocking at the beginning." But then, as it progressed, you're thinking, well, "Hang on a minute, this film's sixty years old." Yeah, I'd say it's the subject matter rather than the... Was it the openness of it? Yeah, it's it's not the graphic sort of... Well, there isn't anything yeah. graphic in there, is there? That's the it, thing. It is the... It's, it's how it makes you think and it's how you... It's, it's his history, it's what's gone on in his life from right. that that makes it quite shocking. Mm. Um, and the fact that... I say in 1960, it's probably the first time this subject has ever come up yeah. in a movie and been, or it might have been brushed on in a movie before, but not like in so much depth. Um, I think Karl Heinz Böhm, <laughs> just love saying his name, um, he played it really well. Very softly spoken until he had that sort of camera in his hand and then you could see his personality change and yeah it's very well acted I thought yeah I think uh, another thing as well is like it it might not be the first time some of the subject matters come up but might be the first time it's not just done it exclusively in a jokey way so like Mm. there's even lines in the film about like when they're leaving the studio about you know better to be what's it better to be touched up in this car then squeezed on the bus and that like, there, so there, was, like, there was the line where Miles Mallison leaves the news agents and he's he's gone back for the two newspapers and he says well I bet he won't be doing the crossword tonight oh, brilliant yeah. <laughs> brilliant because he's got the saucy photos and that's such a British thing to deal with something that might make people feel uncomfortable with humour yeah and yet this is a film that I mean it does that in places but then it takes it takes that stuff and it it sends it in the really dark direction. <laughs> and I think that's what, because we back then we would have been a very prudish. Yeah, this is the like, thing. It's, it's the cusp of the permissive age. Yeah, it? and it's and that's the, what the teenager has only just sort of come around like a few as years a concept, earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you think you know, um, the baby boomers, isn't it? It's, it's that it's that era that disposable income and things yeah. like that. Like, um, I've just seen something on Wikipedia. Vincent Canby wrote of the film in the New York Times in 1979, so this is a reappraisal, uh, sort of 20 years down the line. When Michael Powell's Peeping Tom was originally released in England in 1960, the critics rose up like a bunch of furious Reverend Davidsons to condemn it on moral grounds. It stinks, one critic wrote. Another thought it should be flushed down the sewer, and a third dismissed it haughtily as perverted nonsense. There is nothing angrier than a critic when he can be safely outraged. Peeping Tom's rediscovery, I fear, tells us more about fads in film criticism than it does about art. There you Mm. go. Only someone madly obsessed with being the first to hail a new auteur, which is always a nice way of calling attention to oneself, could spend the time needed to find genius in the erratic works of Mr Powell. Yeah. That's what we've been saying. Basically, the critics were just wrong. Yeah. It was... 
perhaps a year or two too early. The critics in two years' time after Psycho and that... They'd have loved it. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I think, uh, like anything, we, we sort of spoke about this before, anything that is met with this moral outrage, it very quickly becomes to, to a point where people forget what they're even outraged about. or yeah. they, they might not even be outraged Life about anything. Again, it, it's just a Malcolm Muggridge yeah. shit, isn't it, all over. <laughs> but it's like that idea that, as he says, it's safe to be morally outraged by this kind of thing. So everyone jumps on that bandwagon. And then if you ask a vast majority of those people who are Why outraged what is offensive about it, they can't give you an explanation. Well, they haven't seen it, exactly, yeah. yeah. On the whole... First time watch for the pair of you. I, I, I was just intrigued that the pair, of, especially because you hadn't seen it, Charlie. Mm. I thought that it's, it's probably been on your watch list forever. Actually, it's it's really been one to get round. But I always thought that like it seems a bit silly to do it for a different podcast. If you we've got one that speaks about British cinema, mm. or you've got one that speaks about British cinema, and that is so landmark in yeah. British cinema as well. So I'll turn to Charlie first, Paul. I'm getting the feeling you absolutely loved it. Really loved it. Really yeah. loved it. Very enjoyable. Great plot, great concept, great production values, as exactly. you'd expect yeah. from the people responsible. Only thing that slightly let it down, not let it down as such, but didn't keep my interest as intense, was the fact that, you know, those more conventional means start encroaching on it and making it into a kind of more acceptable film because yeah. it simply would have had to be to... Get made. Old habits die hard. Yeah, right, and and you know, I wasn't, as I say, I wasn't that interested in the thriller aspect. I was interested in the kind of horror aspect, the kind of darkness of it. Yeah, mm. pretentious. <laughs> Paul, mm. I, I I can tell you liked it. Well, you said you liked it. We know that. It surprised me. Yeah, I I really didn't have that higher hope for it. And even after watching the first like twenty thirty minutes, I was like, I'm "It took really... you that long to get into it." Was that when yeah. you sort of like stopped then and went back to it? Yeah. Second date, right? Okay. Yeah, I think having like the twenty four hours just to sort of think about what's gone on, and I'm like, "Right now, I'm intrigued to see where this goes and, yeah. and why he's like that." Um, yeah, I'd, I'd actually watch that again pretty soon. That's nice. nice. Good commendation from Paul Charlie, actually. But Bowie said this before as well. If you watch a film an hour before we sit down and discuss it, you really haven't had the time to digest it. And mm. and sometimes it takes that 24 hours or even a week or a month later when you think back and something will be like in the back of your brain. And it's like, oh my God, that film is still affecting me. Yeah, you and still I think remember you're going to find that. Yeah, that, that's why I want yeah. to watch it again soon, mm. just to, because I watched it. In bits, I want to watch it in a whole. Do a proper set of whole run. Yeah. I saw an interview with I think it was John Cassavetes mm-hmm. like uh, a few days ago, and he was talking about he was talking about Main Streets or something. But he was saying about how generally a really good piece of cinema is always worth going back to two months later because you'll mm. just see things yeah. or pick yeah. up on threads. And it'll just make it a lot more kind of a enjoyable experience. Like he said, a good film should be made with that idea in mind of people wanting to revisit it or, wanting to, yeah. or deciding to revisit it two yeah. months later. Like yeah, because yeah. most films, you're not going to take in everything in an hour and a half, two hours. You're going to get sort of the main plot. But once you know the main plot, you can then 
as you say, go back to it and pick up on the things yeah. in the background or the hidden meanings of stuff. With me, and... three or four times down the line over the last 20, 30 years that I've been watching this movie, this time round, because the element of shock isn't there for me anymore mm. and, you know, the intrigue <clears throat> of the psychological side of things, I was more focused on the artistic and the sort of technical side of things yeah. this time round. And when you get to that stage, guys, it becomes another movie. And power movies are yeah. perfect for that kind of Absolutely. examination. Yeah, and it just becomes a masterclass in the technical side of filmmaking as well. And it's a shame that it killed his career because if he was given free reign after this, we'd have had another 10, 15, 20 years. Oh, of, can uh, you imagine him yeah. in the 60s yeah. and 70s? And again, going back to when it was released... Say two years later he'd done this, mm. he would have been held in such high esteem that he would have gone on to make weirder and stranger he and more groundbreaking or, films. Or he'd have become like a David Lean and been doing the big epics. Yeah. You know, the Lawrence of Arabia's, the Rise See, of I, I personally and, you know, put him in that category, absolutely. but again, because his career ended in so-called disgrace, yeah. he wasn't looked at as an institution anymore in the way that Lean was. Like, yeah. I wonder if he regretted doing it. I don't know. I mean, I haven't really done any research into this. I hope he doesn't. I hope he didn't. No, right? Because no, a great, a great artist should yeah. stick to their guns, shouldn't yeah. they? He, he died in 1990, early 90s, I think, and it was just as the film was being reappraised and being you know, mm. held as a classic. And, and he was aware of that yeah. from what I read earlier. Just seems very malicious towards does, someone who's it? already produced such great work. Critics are one of those people that... Like, and you get food critics theatre critics, whatever, they hold so much power by their few words, and yeah. yet, what talent do they actually have? I mean, there's, I mean, there's, you look at people like Ebert and Kale, and that, mm -hmm. and they're fantastic writers. I won't take that away no. from them, but I, I don't like the idea as, as you say, them being the kind of gatekeepers yeah, of things. That's right. I mean, we we never say that we're critics. We we don't ever describe ourselves as critics. Oh, we're just we're just not. people talking about a movie. Well, if I was going to talk about it critically, I'd talk about it in a different way to where I'm talking about it now. Exactly. Hmm. Peeping Tom earned a cult following. This is from Wikipedia. Peeping Tom earned a cult following in the years after its initial release, and since the seventies has received the critical reappraisal. Powell noted ruefully in his in his autobiography, "I make a film that nobody wants to see, and then thirty years later, everybody has either seen it or wants to see it." Hmm. Brilliant. So he was aware yeah. that he had created that, something that special. But also, how, that how, sounds a little bitter as well, doesn't how it? How galling is that? Yeah. That it's like, you bastards, where yeah. were you? You ended my career <laughs> 30 years ago. Where were yeah. you lot? You know? It's a shame. It's a shame because I think the potential for him to have, like you said, to have become a David Lean type. Figure Charlie would have, you know, would have been apparent. It would have been, and obvious. he would have had the ability to do the David Lean kind of would. stuff as Absolutely. well. I mean, Matter of Life and Death and things like that are just yeah. like astonishingly good. I can't recommend them enough exactly. to people who haven't seen them. Yeah, Life and Death of Colonel Blit, all those ones that he did with Pressburg, absolutely fantastic, a whole lot. Okay, chaps, we're going to take a short break. One of the things we used to do on the Stinking Paws podcast was a little game called Six Degrees of Separation. Let's see if the technical side of things is not going to let us down. We'll be back after this. Imagine someone coming towards you who wants to kill you. 
regardless of consequences. A madman? Yes. But he knows it. And you don't. And just to kill you isn't enough for him. But how would he write me? Stay there, Miff. You just tried. Can't imagine what you've thought of. Imagine this would be one of his weapons. That? Yes. That. Mark! Yes, that would be frightening. There's something else. Well, what is it? As I mentioned earlier, we are missing Stephen and the Hall of Fame, the Village Hall of Fame this week. So in a desperate attempt to come up with some form of entertainment, we have revived a stinking pause quiz that was called Six Degrees of Separation. We don't do this very often now, guys, do we? It's because it takes work. It, it takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of technical expertise and us putting on headphones. And This is really weird. We're all wearing headphones now as well, which we don't normally do. Yeah. Can hear every breath everyone takes. Yeah. <laughs> Sting. <laughs> Can anybody explain to the Real Britannia listener the, the the concept of six degrees of separation, what it actually involves? So, six tracks, the initial track will have some relation to the movie that's been discussed. If, if we're really clever. If yes. we're clever enough yes. to do this. Yes. <laughs> this one has. And the, the, the uh, subsequent five songs will then be linked to one another purely in a musical sense it, that, that's where the, the the film theme drops out quite quickly <laughs> yeah like, it's, um, but and, and it can be quite tenuous as well yeah too tenuous when i started doing it it was it was literally just asking scott what am i thinking as opposed to, oh, what to think, like, honestly we used to listen to i used to listen to all 3 minutes of each track before i even got anywhere near to what charlie's brain was like, thinking about it's a dangerous um, place to go. This yeah. this one, I promise you guys, is is not too taxing. So if you're ready, the first track is linked mm-hmm. in a in a roundabout way to what we've been watching, which is Peeping Tom. Okay, gentlemen, track one. This is Paul's era. Sounds like Jam and Lewis style production. The chorus will give it away to Paul. Sounds Is like this... someone like Imagination or. Mm. Sounds like Links to me. Yeah, well, You're on the right, very right lines there. Uh, what's his name? Uh, David Grant. David yeah. Grant. And the song is. Watching you, watching me. Yeah. So that's your tenuous link to Peeping Tom. That's voyeurism. Yeah. I prefer so this is romance, but um, 
See, I was going to go down a, a Lynx route. So, but... It's Africa Toto. No. Same beat. Oh, it is. <laughs> Africa Toto. David Grant's from Africa. I actually just gave away the answer inadvertently. Oh, Lynx Africa. <laughs> no. The most popular brand of deodorant every Christmas. What's that, Java? <laughs> so, Africa by Toto, and the tenuous link is Lynx Africa. Oh, David Grant yeah. was the lead singer of Also, Lynx. a loft conversion song. It was indeed. <laughs> Most played song still every year on the radio worldwide. Is it? Yeah. Not even the number one hit for Toto at the time. And has it been played constantly on a loop in Africa or something there's, you said? There's a setup in the desert in Africa, I think it's in the Sahara, of solar panels powering this stereo and speakers which just play on a loop 24-7-365. Excellent. <laughs> it doesn't rain at all. No. Otherwise, it would ruin it. Sure. <laughs> okay, so that was Africa by Toto, your third track. I can say what he's done. <laughs> oh, by that obvious. Somewhere I'll let Paul ever think, yeah. So we connect into to Toto's the dog. <laughs> Fudge. <laughs> Not that tenuous, really. No, I was thinking of Lynx. I was anticipating Mr. Voz. What's your of Toto? Mm. Excellent. This one will take a bit of thought. I don't think you two will be that aware of the song. I will talk you through it if I have to. Musical number. It's like hit the road check or something. This is in Chicago. It is in Chicago. So think of the main characters in Chicago, the actresses. Um, what verge? Like the the oh, Oscar the winning uh, Oscar Queen Latifah. She was in it. This isn't Queen Latifah, though. Catherine Zeta-Jones. This isn't Catherine Zeta-Jones. It's the uh, other Renee, one. Renee Zellweger. Right. This is Renee Zellweger singing Roxy from Chicago. And your link to Somewhere Over the Rainbow by Judy Garland is Renee Zellweger. She wasn't in one of the rubbish... Wizard of Oz remakes. It wasn't the Wiz, was it? <laughs> no, no, definitely not. No. Rennie Zellweger, Link to Somewhere Over the Rainbow by Judy Garland. She's not a great granddaughter. No. There's a link to the Oscars. Recent. Very recent. Two, three years ago. See, I don't want you to serenade. Oh, she played... It was in the making. Um, go on, you're, go, you're there. Yeah. 
yesterday. She played Judy Garland. In, in she won the Oscar yeah. playing Judy Garland. Of course, it was a biopic. Wasn't yeah. It? yeah. Any good? Loved it. Yeah. Loved it. Yeah. Very jazz hands, isn't it? The whole movie is very jazz hands. <laughs> Showtime. <laughs> I know this. Chicago. <laughs> Who's this singing? Huh? This isn't Chicago. No. Oh, it's Pete Satira. Pete Satira. Gloria Love. So the link is? He used to be in Chicago. There you go. He was the lead singer in Chicago. Bit too niche for me. <laughs> this was from. Definitely heard this song. But in the hope of spoiling his next song, this was from uh, Karate Kid. He might spoil it, he might not. <laughs> you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> Power grab moment. Dear listener, if you could see the faces of my co-hosts here, <laughs> it's like they've gone power ballad mad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's a, he's a fist pumper. This one, isn't it? <laughs> Banana Rama. Cruel Summer? Cruel Summer. Oh. What the heck is this connection <laughs> to Karate Kid? <laughs> How well um, do you know the Karate Kid? I don't. I've seen it once. If Ben is listening, our dear friend Ben Taylorson, he is shouting at, the, at, <laughs> at his iPod now. <laughs> Was it on the soundtrack? It is on the soundtrack. It's okay. the scene where he first meets Elizabeth Shue on the beach. Oh. And I only put it in as a vain attempt of not using you're the best. (laughs) (laughs) Sing along, lads. Okay, guys, firstly, thank you so much for being guests again. Thank you for having me. On the Real Britannia. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Um, so much so that I am going to invite you both back. Delightful. Oh, don't know if I'm free. Uh, well, make yourself free because I have got a movie in mind. It's my turn to choose this time round. I've just shown it to Charlie, who uh, and <laughs> Charlie is all for it. <laughs> It's <laughs> my cue to leave, I think. Basically, what, what this movie is, Paul, we reviewed it how long ago, mate? Five About years? About five years. Charlie's first time watch. 
have you brought yourself to watch it since? It's one of those movies that you can't. It's not that kind of film, and I don't mean that disparagingly to the quality of it. It's just the, the tone of it is... Yeah, Paul's intrigued already. Um, and it's one of those ones, Paul, you know we've always said this before, that it's, it's difficult to say that you've enjoyed that movie when the subject matter is quite dark. Yeah. It doesn't get much darker than this, mate, does it? It doesn't. <laughs> it, it actually doesn't. Okay. To ease you in gently, sir. Mm. It stars Sean Connery. Oh, good stuff. Okay, so th- that's a plus point for you. And it's got Trevor Howard, Peter Bowles, okay. and Ian Bannon. You know, some famous yeah. faces yeah. in it. It's from 1973. It's directed by Sidney Lumet, one of the greatest American directors of all time. I'm just going to read the briefest of like sort of synopsis without giving too much away. And I'm should we advise Paul to go in completely blind? You have to, because of the nature of the, yeah. the plot, actually. Yeah. Okay, this is the the opening sentence from a Los Angeles Times review that just says, A splendid, unjustly neglected 1973 British film in which Sean Connery, at his very best under Sidney Lumet's direction, plays a veteran police sergeant haunted by years of contact with terrible crimes and on the brink of a total breakdown. I think that's enough, Charlie, don't you? Anything else would be I, too much. I think I'll know the title, but I... I don't, you think, guess I've, I don't the, think I've seen it. The, the man who would be king. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's the offence. Okay. Uh, we, as I say, we reviewed it four or five years ago, and it was one of our favourite conversations. Unreal. Unreal. It will spark a lot of talk between okay. the three of us. Charlie, I mean, I just showed this to Charlie before, just to say, do you reckon we ought to do this? And he went, yeah, because... The time is right for us to talk about it again. And it'd be nice to bring you on board. I'm intrigued. It sounds like it's got a really good cast. I never want to have a conversation and about this film without seeing a first-time viewer's yeah. response. Yeah. And I'm guessing the offence isn't shoplifting. Something, no, something as simple as that. <laughs> I'm guessing it's quite a dark it's offence. An Anthony, Anthony Worrell Thompson by <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do yourself a favour. I mean, we're not going to meet up till after Christmas. Uh, we're recording this in mid-November. Get your Christmas festivities and jollities out of the way because it is not a Christmas movie. There are people listening to this going, oh my God, what's he let himself yeah. in for? <laughs> <laughs> ah, no, I'm intrigued. Yeah, just leave it at that. I th- I th- that's going to be one of our, uh, our greatest episodes ever. <laughs> Let's leave it at that. Guys... Stinging Paul's podcast, we're still doing it. You know, we're still getting together. So, so, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to listen to more Charlie and Paul, you can find us on the Stinking Paul's podcast. But this has been Real Britannia. He's been Paul. He's been Charlie. I've been Scott. Cheers, guys. See you soon. Ciao. See you later. Absolute shah. Positive shah. Bon Good luck. Thank you.
keeping the British hand up, sir. I'm sick of pains. <laughs>